0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not
1: interested in art?
0: No. Now look, we're going to
1: do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar. I not say anything like that except uh,
0: molecular acid. must be using it for blood. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it.
1: Slowly kills off all potential threats can't be destroyed through conventional means. Sounds like our film-spotting madness champion. We need to check the madness rulebook to see if acid blood is legal, though. Tom Skerritt, Harry Dean Stanton, and Yafit Koto in that clip from 1979's Alien. Alien Day is coming up on April 26th. We'll explain later. So we're giving Ridley Scott's iconic film, The Sacred Cow, treatment. Plus your 2016 film spotting madness
2: champion and my conversation with Jeremy Sonier, writer director of the new thriller Green Room.
1: That and more. It's great that we're able to record even though you're in quarantine, Adam. Ahead on film spotting.
2: Film Spotting is once again presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, a couple options this week that fit in nicely with some current and recent subject matters we're talking about alien and films that take place in the future we've got the future movie is thrilled to present a diptych of two of the best spanish films of the decade festival feeded the future is an adventurous and hypnotic trip to the glorious 80s where an all-night party becomes a fictional time capsule that quietly challenges the status quo and there you have the 80s and we've talked about richard Linklater, and everybody wants some recently on the show he of course did waking life movie's Second selection this week is Androids Dream. Loosely adapting Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Fearless newcomer Ion DeSouza defies sci-fi genre conventions with a bizarre sense of humor and lots of irony and this low-key response to Blade Runner. Blade
1: Runner, of course, directed by Aliens. Ridley Scott doesn't have tears in rain though that's what i want to know everyday movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it that means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for only $4.99 a month plus when you use their mobile app you can download films to watch offline film spotting listeners can try movie free for a month just go to movie.com slash film spotting that's m-u-b-i.com slash film
2: You're listening to Film Spotting. Jeremy Sonier, he was the guy behind one of our favorite films from 2014, the inventive revenge thriller and eventual golden brick winner for that year, Blue Ruin. His new film, Green Room, is out in limited release this weekend, and it's another clever take on a genre, this one as much horror as thriller, a gory tale of some punk rockers who get a little more than they bargain for, Josh, when they take what seems to be, from the outset anyway, a third-rate gig to begin with. Later in the show, my conversation with Sonye. Also later, film-spotting Madness 2016 comes to an end, which means it's time to start planning
1: Madness 2017. Of course it is. <laughs> but first, as anyone who's not remotely nerdy knows, X-Moon LV-426 is where the creatures were first discovered in Ridley Scott's Alien. That has led to April 26 being declared Alien Day by fans of the film and given us an excuse to give it the sacred cow treatment. Dallas? You're going to have to hold your position for a minute. I... I've
0: lost the signal. What? You sure? Look, look
2: around. Are you sure that it's not there? I mean, it's got to be around there somewhere.
1: Check that out, Lambert. You may be getting interference. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there.
0: It's got to be around there. Dallas?
1: Uh, am I, am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. There's a single image from 1979's Alien that serves as the perfect visual metaphor for the entire movie, Adam. At the point I'm thinking of, the title creature is trapped in the air ducts of the Nostromo, the commercial towing vessel where most of the movie is set. Dallas, the ship's captain, played by Tom Skerritt, crawls in after it, hoping to finish it off with a flamethrower. The image I'm thinking of is the hatch to the air duct, which closes behind him in the shape of a metallic spiral so that our circular view of him gets smaller and smaller until it shuts completely and he effectively disappears. This, in essence, is what Alien does to us. It constricts and constricts in terms of narrative and use of screen space until we're face to face with a monster. Now, the first time I saw Alien, this left me breathless. But how does it work on a second or perhaps a third or fourth viewing? Taking another look for this Sacred Cow review of the sci-fi classic, Adam, did familiarity with the movie's narrative and technique lessen the intensity of the experience? Or did your appreciation for the film only grow like a cute little xenomorph freshly exploded from the chest of its human carrier
2: yeah i'll go that way okay it so was good. definitely the latter i think my appreciation for the movie did grow and you're absolutely right in terms of that moment being a really good one where you're just keenly aware too that he is probably not coming back there's just something really dreadful about when that hatch closes and he is trapped in that air duct it's been the trend yeah <laughs> it absolutely has and that sense of claustrophobia you're right is a key part of this film really from the very beginning and i want to go back to the very beginning of the movie because it has not only a great opening it has a great opening credit sequence josh right where we see the letters yes. alien spelled out as so slowly yeah so slowly just coming to life forming before us just as the camera is panning and we're seeing this X moon or whatever that the xenomorph comes from these letters revealing themselves that way really does set up the entire movie because this is a film that is going to take its time revealing to you ultimately what kind of film it is. And of course, as well, which we'll talk about who the hero of the movie is. And after we get done with that opening credit sequence, we get a shot that feels like it was lifted right out of the beginning of Star Wars, right? And this movie, of course, following right in the wake of Star Wars, any film that is certainly set in space, a sci-fi movie like this, is going to have to reckon with that in some way. And so we get that shot, that famous shot, from the underbelly of this large cargo ship as it goes by. And audiences, very familiar, as almost anyone would have been at this time with Star Wars, may have felt like, oh, maybe we're in for another movie like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, what Ridley Scott, I think, whether it was conscious or not, it's a nice little subversion of your expectations because everything that follows... ...ultimately shows you that this is not going to be Star Wars at all. It's not going to be fantasy. It's not really even going to be spectacle. And from there, we then get the camera as it moves, that long shot of the camera roaming through the corridors... Of the Nostromo. And I actually watched this opening sequence just three or four times on Blu ray after I watched the film in its entirety again, just because I enjoy watching the opening so much. I love the way the camera almost seems like a probe that has been sent to this ship to capture footage from the site of a disaster, maybe. It's as if it's already an abandoned ship, that it's haunted, that something has gone horribly wrong. And so it immediately piques our curiosity there's this inherent sense of mystery and then ultimately a sense of discovery. You're looking for whatever's going to be around every corner and those little touches, the rustling of papers as the camera goes by or on the table at one point, there are these two figurines that kind of bobble with motion. It's this sense that this place has been lived in, that people should be here, that it's been lived in. Yeah, there's a human touch, even though we see no humans. Exactly. And so it makes you wonder, is this place inhabited by ghosts? There's just something off about it. And of course, as you move through those corridors, too, it's not like Star Wars. It's not like 2001, the vision Kubra gave us, where the corridors aren't sleek. The spaceship doesn't feel really clean and maybe futuristic as we have come to envision it. It feels used, right? It feels not only rustic, but there's actual rust on the metal that makes up these corridors. And the more I watched it, the more I realized just how long and seemingly endless the corridors felt. But they are really tight. Again, going back to Star Wars or 2001, where... Darth Vader steps on the ship, and it feels like you have these vast spaces. There's a certain vastness to the length of it, which actually just makes it feel even more imposing and heightens that sense of dread because you just have no idea what is out there. But when they're in those spaces, they are really confined by that space. And even when we finally meet the characters and I love the fact that we're introduced to them over a dinner scene, and Mm -hmm. it casually throws us in. Even there, I noticed how often, and throughout the rest of the film you see this too, how often we see these characters in close-up. There really isn't a sense of them ever pinned against this vast landscape, the way ridley scott does i think to really
1: good effect actually in prometheus but here he's going for something completely different there's always equipment like hanging over them it's it's like a submarine really is the feeling that you get Mm -hmm. i will say that i think star wars shares with this the lived-in feel though i mean there are the the ship you're mentioning in the be- very beginning of Star yeah, Wars, has Empire. that clean look, not the Empire, but a lot of the other places we go and ships we see have this same lived in feel. So I do like that. And I think also, I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, but what Alien shares in common with Star Wars is just fantastic creature design and mm-hmm. shows you how important it is to do that well. I'm glad you started with that opening because one of the triumphs of this film is also its production design. And that's what really stood out to me this time. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just instinctually a narrative guy. When I see films for the first time, I clue into the story and I'll notice things about production design, but often it's not until I go back and can let the story run around in the back of my head and look at more of the details that I'll see some of these things. And man, what you're talking about in the opening is so crucial. Uh, We should probably say that Michael Seymour was the production designer here. He was nominated for an Oscar, but that's you know, the spiral hatch I talked about has everything to do with that. Mm -hmm. That's an element of production design. There is, um, that 2001 like communication center where they talk to mother, the AI program running Mm -hmm. the ship. That's so different from the rest of it, right? It's white. It has the little bulbs of light all over it. And Mm -hmm. I love that contrast. And the tiny little screens. Yep. Yep. And that sequence when they wake up, from their hypersleep chambers or whatever they are it adds to what you were talking about in this sense of emptiness in the ship and who who works here who's been here and when those oblong egg-like contraptions open. Very egg like what it does is it makes the humans seem like the aliens. Like they're emerging. And it's just another early way we're put off center Mm -hmm. in this film to unsettle us. And okay, what are what are these shapes coming out? Well well that looks human. And it's not until really they all start coming out of their sleep and fall into their more recognizably human activities like sharing a meal That we start to feel a little bit comfortable, like, okay, we've got our bearings now. And of course, after that, things just go crazy.
2: Exactly. And you're right about that sequence where they emerge. And John Hurt is the first character we see emerge. He plays Kane, who, of course, is going to famously meet a very tragic end later in the film. But that's another one that I rewound and watched over and over again, because it almost catches you off guard. When you first see the camera again, roaming the corridors, it stops on the door, the door opens and it's dark inside and you're trying to make out a visual of what's inside there. And I had something completely different in my head from what then ultimately emerged in the light, which is these pods. And then you get this kind of quick dissolve as it actually changes the camera angle, because when it's coming into the room, it's not on John Hurt, I don't believe. But then all of a sudden it is on John Hurt. So we move the camera angle with this dissolve. And as he emerges, you're right, it adds to the sense, as you said, of something being alien with them. And as we get to that sequence, that's just another one of those little touches that Ridley Scott and the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon here gets so right, is we meet them as characters and we meet them as an ensemble in that dinner scene we ultimately learn all the basics of their character as we're going to see play out over the course of the film through that conversation and in their interactions with each other and i love that they give us that moment in a way that makes it about that ensemble it makes it about them as characters it's not about plot it's not about setting up the story at all but it is about giving us that background ultimately to who they are
0: still with us brett hey yeah i dead. Anybody ever tell you you looked at me? Oh yeah, right. Now, I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we talk, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to. We deserve full shares, right? right you see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for, like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else uh, gets more than us. Oh, yeah. the mother wants to talk to you.
1: Yeah. And we instantly understand the dynamic among all of them. You have Yafit Koto and Harry Dean Stanton as sort of the grunts who work down below and they're arguing about getting more pay, their Mm -hmm. share. There's a class system at work that is part of the more thematic interests in the movie. And it's so elegantly laid out how that structure is in place and where the tension points are. And of course, that comes into play later at crucial moments when rank is pulled or not pulled, and that all adds to the tension and the suspense as well.
2: It does, definitely, and let's talk a little bit about its themes, or what the movie is about. I don't know how much that really did factor into your viewing, or your pleasure, viewing this film, but we've already mentioned 2001, or I have a few times, and we talked about Star Wars. It's hard not to watch this film and think about those movies, and of course, think about all the films that have followed Alien, some within its own franchise, that are so beholden, and Oh, so much to this film, because we've seen so many elements that were done first here and really probably done best in Ridley Scott's film. But of course, at its core, if you're a fan of John Carpenter's The Thing, I believe from 1982, you'll think, boy, these films are awfully similar. And of course, that film followed this movie a few years later. But the original the john carpenter film is based on the howard hawks film the thing from another world from 1955 so it's the same basic storyline of an isolated group that comes upon Mm -hmm. an alien creature that is determined to survive that's all its objective really is, and it's going to do it by taking out these characters one at a time. Each movie even has a similar character that gets it in the form of the Kurt Russell character in the Carpenter version, and of course Sigourney Weaver here is Ripley. But maybe because 2001 was a movie I just recently saw at the Music Box at the 70mm Film Festival, that it was so much in my mind, but one little adjustment that I saw this film make from 2001, setting up nicely... Aliens, And of course, Aliens is in my head as well. We know sure. the sequel and what James Cameron does with the material is this movie is one where it's not about the machine or technology being ultimately responsible for the downfall of these characters there's no doubt that ash played wonderfully by the great british actor ian holm oh yeah is certainly on some level a villain i'm not denying that and you can understand her distrust ripley her distrust for any non-human crew member that we see play out in the movie aliens but ultimately he's just following orders right even mother the master computer here is just following orders and i mentioned those tiny little screens there's something actually in the way i think ridley scott tries to downplay the all-powerful technology. Because unlike the menacing red dot that seems all-powerful in HAL, this is just this tiny little screen that just gives us the little green data. It's a tool of others. That's it. It's exactly right. And Mother is programmed, ultimately, by the corporation, just like Ash was. So, not to belabor it, but... Even in 2001, of course, there is a group of people who have told Hal what the mission is and have decided to leave the crew in the dark. But I think there, there's more of a sense of the people responsible being genuinely curious about the monolith and what's going on by Jupiter. It's not so much about trying to exploit anything for capitalistic or military gains. And there's the question of if Hal has evolved in that film. No, you're absolutely right. And of course, there's also a question of whether or not the fact that they program him to keep a secret is in fact what kind of undoes him so mother is just doing what mother has been programmed to do ash is just doing what ash has been programmed to do so it's not as blatantly satirical or as anti-corporate as aliens is we don't have a burke character like paul Reiser here that you just really hate you come to feel that way a little bit about ash certainly but the movie seems to be really just setting up In retrospect, you can look at it in 1979 and see it as a film that seemed to presage in some way the me decade of the 80s without hitting you over the head with it. Aliens hits you over the head with it, and I think does it in a good way. I love that film too. But this is a movie that's just subtly kind of setting that up. And really, besides the anti corporate notion here to the film, the tale at its core is as old as time. It's about hubris, right? It's about man's desire and ultimate futility at its inability to control nature. That really is what is at the core of this movie. And I think that's even why we feel a little bit of maybe sympathy is the wrong word as we learn more about Ash. But there's a sense of before we really know that he's complicit in not caring about the downfall of the other crew members, we see him as potentially a man of science. And we understand that what he's doing may have a purpose and may have may have a good purpose
0: you want something? Yes, I, uh. had a little talk. How's, uh. How's Kane? He's holding, no changes. And, uh. our guest? Oh. Hmm? Well, as I said, I'm still collating, actually, but, uh. I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. He has a funny habit of. Shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon, which gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions. Is nothing?
1: Holm is so good. He's instantly creepy, creepy throughout. And I got to say, I never felt any sympathy for him. The most terrifying scene in this movie, and I remember when I saw this when I was young, and even still strikes me today, is his... I don't know if you can say death, but his bludgeoning and his refusal to die yeah. and the way they prolong his so-called life. I mean, that, there's just something so eerie about that. And But this is what I love about Holmes' performance is how he's, he's always trying to balance, um, you know, this – Ash's impulse is – to be logical and rational, to do whatever needs to be done to complete this mission he's been given. But he has to mask that under this veneer of human emotion. Right. So and Holm is the moment where he does this perfectly is when the other crew members, the quarantine debate, they're trying to get in and Ripley doesn't want to let them in. Mm-hmm. And Holm wants to let them in because he wants the creature in, but he masks that under human compassion. By saying, "Well, they're my crewmates, of course, I couldn't right. help but let them in, and just the the levels of duplicity there are also very creepy. So yeah, you're right, it touches very lightly on I think there are two things here that if you want to look for theme or meaning, it is absolutely a capital satire to to some degree, mm-hmm. and also it is something of a feminist statement. Very lightly handled in the fact that Sigourney Weaver's Ripley is going to be the one who really, we get the sense, should have been in charge all along in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. ends up being in charge and has to solve things by meeting this alien, essentially, not fleeing, not outsmarting it or anything right. like that, but meeting it face-to-face and conquering it. I think both of those things, as you said, are brought to full flourish more in Aliens by James Cameron. Both mm-hmm. of those elements. Whether or not we were thinking about maybe trying to fit in Aliens, too, but whether or not that makes Aliens the better film, I don't know. I'd have to take another look to say. Um, but I, I really like how streamlined and delicately Minimal. yeah. minimalist um, that Alien handles those two things while letting them be there and letting us all over them. But really what it does, I want to get back to the creature design and talk about this a little bit because and eager. it's just yeah, it's just so iconic and it you you wonder, well why is that? How many creatures have we seen at the movies? And this shows you the brilliance of being able to do something different because in Batman v Superman, they roll out another one at the end of these space troll things that we've seen in how many movies? I mean, Alison Wilmore of Film Spotting SVU tweeted out something when that movie came out. I think she said, Who wore it better? And it was like the space troll from Batman v Superman, the Lord of the Rings troll, which that came to mind right away, and then one other one, I think, from another recent superhero movie, and they all looked exactly the same. Right. Alien came up with something with Giger's design and working with the special effects team. They all did win an Oscar for their work. And I think there are a few key reasons why this does stick with us. And one of them is just that it's rooted in biology. They spend so much time on this thing's biology. And that because we can recognize that and we can understand that, even though it's alien, it makes it so much scarier. I mean, I'm so B, my daughter is in fourth grade now. She's going through an intense animal phase, exploration phase. So she was telling me the other day about, and she'll be mortified that I don't get this right, but I believe it's a wasp or something that will land on another bug, lay its eggs, and when they hatch, they will have that other bug to eat. Mm -hmm. And that's how they grow, right? That's horrible. And it's happening right around us. So something like Alien transplants that everyday occurrence to this alien world makes it happen to humans Mm -hmm. in the way they trace this biology and these parasitic functions. And to me, it's just rooting it in some level of reality that makes it that much more terrifying. And they get all the details right. Think about how goopy, you know, and how tactile this movie is when it comes to the alien. You've got that alien blood that's like acid, you Mm -hmm. know. You've got Hertz blood after the chest explosion thing is just awful for the room right ridiculous amount of blood ashes quote-unquote blood that kind of milky creamy milk oh that's terrifying and then of course we have whatever is coming dripping out of the alien's mouth so we're just drenched in all of this stuff that we can feel we can feel it coming through the screen and it's just a it's just such a goopy horror experience this movie
2: it is and actually while i was watching it it made me think about A complaint you had about a film from the 70s that's a masterpiece, which is The Exorcist, which has some similarly sexual bodily functions and all sorts of other fluids that we see play out and horrifying sequences. And you were very turned off by those. Didn't buy a minute of those. But here, something like the
1: chest bursting scene seems very similar to me in some ways and for me just as effective. I think the reason I didn't buy any of those is because they seemed, even though they were taking place on Earth with an actual human, they seemed less realistic, if that makes any sense. Once you're rooting what's going on here, once we've walked ourselves through the process from egg to hatching mm-hmm. to, again, all these recognizable biological <laughs> functions, that makes it more real to me than what was going on in The Exorcist. Well, how aware of you? I
2: mean, you mention biology, but let's talk specifically about sex how much were you aware as you watched it about the phallic nature of the alien that also seems to be mixed with a very feminine aspect to it and the fact that i mean o'bannon himself the guy who wrote the original screenplay for this film is pretty explicit in some of his interviews about this movie saying that he was really trying to make every male in the audience feel queasy that he was trying to give you almost the most horrific version of a birth scene and that's what it is in the form of john hurt and even in the form of the face hugger that first attaches itself to john hurt this is basically as he put it an oral rape he is trying to give men the feeling of watching a horror film that women have felt watching horror films for decades
1: yeah i know that i know that thesis is out there and that um it, it was you know partly intentional as you say but I got to say, I I never really registered to me that way. And again, it goes, maybe it simply goes back to myself being as a kid, like into animals to the degree of watching so many nature shows that that's just stuff of earth to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's all stuff that animals do. And certainly it has that metaphorical value too. But to me, it was more a situation of, okay, what if you were somewhere in space And these sort of processes that we avoid as civilized humans began to happen to us. Um, And and that was frightening (laughs) enough for me.
2: Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think going back to Weaver a little bit, and one of the real delights of this film being that the movie really takes its time and is quite deliberate in how it reveals itself, what kind of movie it really is. And that comes through in the way that we don't really know who... The protagonist is we don't really know who our hero or our heroine is going to be And this movie launched Weaver's career. And we've talked about her a little bit when we've talked about aliens. I know it's made a top five or two of mine over the years, but really with her what she exudes is this sense of real pragmatism, right? It's not like she's a super badass. She becomes more of a badass as the films go on. Yeah, by necessity. But it's just her pragmatism that we respect the most. And I think what really comes through and this, you know, going back to the line about how I said I had some sympathy for Ian Holm, what I really meant was just the fact that if you do see him early on as a pure scientist, I mean, you've discovered an alien creature out there in the universe. Of course, you're going to be curious and actually want to figure out what it is as
1: opposed to just destroying sure and he is serious about his work and we're as curious so i guess you do you want to follow him along for those reasons right but unlike that creature which
2: as ash describes it in a way that you could describe certainly a lot of corporations that we saw on screen in the 1970s in this era kind of of disillusionment he describes it as the perfect organism i admire its purity its sense of survival unclouded by conscience remorse or delusions of morality Ash isn't describing a biological creature at all. He's describing an entity, an unfeeling entity whose only goal is to continue to exist and to flourish, right? And so you can see how that metaphor, of course, harkens back to the capitalism a little bit. But what makes Ripley so great is that she exhibits instead of the hubris that really the corporation exudes, she has respect for that creature and the potential threat of that creature and the unknown of nature in general. But she also, of course, has respect for human life. The whole reason she won't let that thing on board the ship is because she recognizes that it could be a threat, and it could be a threat to everyone on board. Of course, Ash and the company, they don't have either of those traits, unfortunately. But the little bit of misdirection, again, going back to the Star Wars bit, maybe, and the fact that it'd be very easy to think that Tom Skerritt as the captain is maybe yeah. going to be the hero of this movie, and they just keep getting picked off one by one until we realize, okay, actually, the person who's made the most sense the whole time, she's really the hero of this story. Now, what's interesting, thinking about her as a feminist icon, if you will, I wonder, though, about the fact, Josh, looking back, and I don't think this is really a knock on the film, but... I just think it's worth discussing. It is interesting that when we see her interacting with Veronica Cartwright, Lambert, who is perhaps a bit more of a stereotypical woman in an action movie. I would say so. She's chain smoking and she's very afraid and she's hysterical. And in the point where the... Alien is coming down on her, she just cowers and she doesn't do anything. Whereas, the opposite like Ripley, of Ripley, yeah, Ripley is defined by her action. She's always acting, right? They're bickering with each other. The first time we see them really interact with each other when they're doing their jobs. And then, in a key scene where Ripley, as the senior officer, goes to Ash, and this is the scene you were referring to where he couches everything as if he really cared about human life. Well, what, what did you want me to do? I had to let them on board the ship. Kane might die. She points out to him that he didn't act within the manual. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't act like a science officer who should have known that they needed to stay in quarantine. And when he says, I care about doing my job just as much as you do, and you need to let me do my job, she just turns and walks away. The movie really does just have her in that moment. I don't know what she should have done instead, but she doesn't have any response to that. And she certainly doesn't put Ash in his place.
1: She does consistently let Ash undermine her yeah I think that didn't bother me because she doesn't quite yet have the authority over him that she might need to do anything because Mm -hmm. Dallas is still around and he's the captain at this point as long as he is around I actually you know that was the scene for me where I felt like we would swing over her way because it would take guts even to go ahead and challenge him about that. I think the alternative would have been to just let it go. Mm -hmm. But no, she shows here that just because they're equals in terms of colleagues, just because maybe this would come into play. She's a woman. She's not going to drop it. She's going to pursue it with him. Yeah. She's going to go tell him, hey, you did it. You did it against my command. And actually, maybe she is his superior at that point. But anyways, in this experience of the film, it it felt to me like that was her stepping out. That was one of the moments where she did try to take charge mm-hmm. by holding to the quarantine. And even though that didn't work, she still stepped out and was like, hey, this was out of line. For sure. And at least my sympathies go with her yeah. at that point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. One thing I did did want to ask you about and i've debated whether or not i should bring this up only because i potentially look a foolish for not getting it or b foolish for not spending more time researching it and finding an answer because it's probably out there but did the chronology of the corporation slash mother slash ash did the chronology of their understanding of what the creature is or what their desires for the creature the alien were was that clear to you because the reason i'm asking is as you watch the movie play out without knowing that there's anything nefarious going on right you just assume that he is being a man of science ash is saying i want that organism on board this ship yeah you don't know why or what he's going to do with it or that anyone else cares about it you just think he wants it and like i said you can kind of understand that but the notion is almost there's this tremendous irony in the fact that somebody set up a distress signal that was actually a warning, and the warning signal is the very thing that drew them to the planet, right? Instead of it doing its job and functioning as a signal that would scare people away, it actually drew the people there. Okay, but as you get through the film, it becomes clearer from the discussions with Mother and what Ash says to Ripley in that confrontation that the notion is Ash was put on this ship all along. The mission of this ship from the very beginning was to find that very beacon and to discover it and to take it back so i just wanted to be clear on that that is how we see it that from the very beginning there
1: was never any accident them stumbling across this on lv426 am i right i don't know about that i think you're right in that wasn't ash a last minute replacement right yes so i think that and they suggest he was because they knew right so but you know for me it didn't bother me or trip me up for a couple of reasons i mean they may have put him on there because they somehow found out that there was the possibility of this Mm -hmm. and this particular crew was going to be nearby maybe it was the closest vessel nearby yeah so that did bother me and also once communications are back up you know I was just assuming that there were other communications going to Ash by some way through Mother or something No, I I
2: did as well. In fact, I thought there was a scene maybe where Ash was in the computer room with Mother by himself, and I went back and scanned through it, and that doesn't exist. Though I love that little bit of misdirection again where Ripley's in there and then Ash in that shot of all of a sudden right next to her. And that is pretty scary. But it's not something that really bothered me so much as it's interesting that if we buy the idea that the corporation knew all along – that this organism somehow existed out there Mm -hmm. and had an objective to bring it back, and that's really why they put these people on this ship, it, of course, opens that larger question of, well, how did they know it was out there? And maybe this is some of the stuff Ridley Scott was attempting to answer in Prometheus, which I don't remember enough about it. You're getting a headache territory now. But is that, that, it did occur to me that then something that is fundamental to the story is not explained at all. They really do leave it out there just for you to think about and I guess ponder how did they know how did they ever get information back about this life force it was something anyway that did stick in my mind as I watched the movie
1: one thing I wanted to get to before we wrap up I hope you're gonna say Jerry Goldsmith (laughs) well we can talk about that um and and we probably should I was going to talk about the performances a little bit and you touched on this in the beginning when you mentioned the close-ups because so Many of the key moments here are in close-up. They're partly in dialogue to establish that dynamic among the crew. But once that's set in place, we get a lot of the fear and the wonderment Mm -hmm. and the terror really at some point by close-ups and i think weaver is especially good at this home we talked about a little bit and even scare it too and and just formally what i like that scott does with these close-ups is there's an early rhythm to the movie where we'll get one of those really tight it's all face and then the very next shot after a quick cut is some expanse some wide vast expanse, Scared looking at the X-Moon itself. You know, we'll see his face and then we get this spectacular mm-hmm. planetary vista. And then later on, there's the one of John Hurt in his space helmet when they're on the planet mm-hmm. and he's, you know, fearful there. And then the next one is that cavernous egg yeah. hatching lair. Yep. So those two come right after each other. And just going back to this sense of constriction that I was talking about at the beginning, I noticed this time that that rhythm slows down. As the movie goes on and we get less of the cutaway shots to Expanse and more close-ups, mm-hmm. and more interiors. And eventually, that's all we're left with. So we just, it's like the, the movie's tightened itself, tightened the, the actual space around us by the end, and, and we're left with more yeah, of those true. close-ups that are... We never even, get outside the ship. We anyway. don't. I think the last one we get outside is when she's in the escape mm-hmm. shuttle. There's one, of the, there's one of those when she's about to launch, but at that point, it's kind of a false false relief right because we're not
2: really at the end no and Jerry Goldsmith I wanted to bring him up because we've talked about really all the key players in this except for the composer and I'm notoriously bad at describing why I like scores but I really like this score I mean everything that we've talked about that's effective about this film in terms of this creeping sense of dread and the isolation and the deliberateness and the subtlety those elements all do come through in the music.
1: I would agree. It's that I one of my first notes was, wow, hardly any score. Right. Like, I didn't remember it that way. But right. what it is, is that the score is in the exact right places. Yeah. And so it's I don't drawing think, attention to itself. No. And but I don't think you could call it like um, necessarily subtle. No. Like when it's, it's there, not, it's doing it's not its work. hiding. No, no. But but it's it's just doing its work at absolutely the right moment. As we mentioned, Tuesday, April
2: 26th, is Alien Day. Check your local listings to see if Alien, along with James Cameron's Aliens from 1986, is playing on a big screen near you. Chicagoans can catch both films, including Aliens in 70mm, at the music box. If you see the movie and agree or disagree with our take, and I think it's fair to say we are both going absolutely a sacred cow and not a false idol, you can send your thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net, provided you're not a sociopathic android. These sacred cow reviews are a semi-regular part of our show. I think you could say, Josh, maybe done ten of them or so at this point, and if you are someone who likes in-depth conversations about classic films, then hopefully you already know about the next picture show. It's part of the Film Spotting podcast family made up of former dissolvers, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. All four of those folks, Josh, have been frequent guests here on the show. Every other week, the Next Picture Show drops two episodes, a two-part conversation about a classic film and how it relates to a current release. Their upcoming pair considers Assault on Precinct 13 and Green Room, two films that really fit nicely into that same scheme that we're discussing, Alien, as far as an ensemble being trapped in one confined space if you're curious about that hopefully you'll check them out more at
1: nextpictureshow.net or do a search in iTunes we should find out who the next picture show folks voted for in the film's body madness championship round I agree. maybe we'll get back to you on that but we do have final results in this year's completely meaningless yet existentially fraught tournament when we come back stay with us beloved,
2: we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life life Electric Electric word, word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long long
0: time. time, But I'm here here to tell you, there's something else. else. The The afterworld. A world world of never-ending happiness. happiness. You can always see the sun, sun. day Day or night. night. So when you call call up that shrink shrink in Beverly Beverly Hills, Hills.
2: you know the one. one. Doctor, everything be alright. This is film spotting, and to the non Swedes out there, and surely there must be a few of you not. The Battle Hymn of the Republic, but something about the price of a shot at Limping Lada's bar in Gothenburg. It's a clip from 2014's A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence from Swedish director Roy Anderson. Anderson is one of the directors whose films we would definitely include in our next Film Spotting Marathon if you, the Film Spotting listeners, in fact, decide that contemporary Scandinavian cinema is the subject you'd like us to cover. Your other choices are a pair of Chinese language options, either art house or popular. Think basically Ho Xiao Shen versus Johnny To. The voting through one week, Josh, has been close. So we're going to leave it open for another week, and we hope to dive into that next marathon before too long. You can make your pick. And we hope you will at filmspotting.net. Before we get into the
1: Film Spotting Madness final round results, a few more notes. How about we give away some passes? I like to do that. We've been doing a lot of that lately, passes to advanced screenings or run-of-event showings of films here in Chicago, and Green Room is one that's out this weekend, and we do have some run-of-event passes for that weekend giveaway. We also have passes to The Meddler. This is a Monday, April 25 screening, the films from writer-director, Lorene Scafaria. There's going to be a and a with her after the film The Meddler stars Susan Sarandon, J.K. Simmons, and Rose Byrne And one more film with passes we have here It's for The Man Who Knew Infinity We've been mentioning this the last few weeks on the show It stars Jeremy Irons And the screening for that is Wednesday April 27. So to find out how to enter for passes to any or all of those films, just go to filmspotting.net. It's right there in the top stories. Also wanted to give a shout out to the
2: Wisconsin Film Festival. Here's the bad news, Josh. We got an email from Kelly Warren there at WMUU Radio 102.9 in Madison, Wisconsin. Asking us if we could give a shout out to the festival and publicize it a little bit. Unfortunately, it runs April 14th through the 21st. And when we got the email from Kelly, we had already recorded our last show. So the festival at this point, everyone is hearing this, has already ended. We certainly hope that it was a successful festival. And maybe it's one that we can give some love to next year in advance. Kelly, thank you for the note. And thank you as well for broadcasting weekly episodes of film spotting on WMUU. I also wanted to promote, I think this is the first time I'm mentioning this, at least mentioning it as something that you can register for, Josh. I may be hinted at it, but if I can, once again, actually get prepared, and that's a long shot at this point, I'm going to be teaching another summer class at the University of Chicago's Graham School. It's going to run July through August, a six-week course, and it's called The Art of Memoir, on screen. So we're going to be watching films like My Winnipeg, Stories We Tell, probably on the syllabus, A Moment of Innocence, going back to our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon, and many other really interesting films. I hope to actually have some regular guests. I have not ironed this all out yet. But actually, my plan is, Josh, not to just have the occasional guests like I've had you appear at my past few classes. I've had Michael Phillips appear at at least one course and maybe a few other special guests along the way. I'm actually thinking for all six weeks, I might as well give the students their money's worth. I'm looking to have a VIP, someone special come to every single class. You're just trying to do less work. I know.
1: How dare you? <laughs> I know your reasoning there. How dare you? Sir. But I will help you out. I, I usually like to crash one of these. I, it might have to be, I don't know if if I'm your appointed mm-hmm. VIP for this one, but My Winnipeg, because I think I've seen all the others of these. And you and do
2: like to force yourself to watch something new. I do.
1: It's yeah. been fun before. So if if you can slot me
2: in for that one. Yeah, I think My Winnipeg, you're you're penciled in, okay, Josh, for that you. one. And actually, you know, a movie that... Got mentioned a few weeks ago here on the show when Michael Phillips was sitting in for you. A really wonderful new film, a golden brick contender called Cresha from director Trey Edward Schultz. That movie very much fits into the scheme of the art of memoir. a Very personal, very autobiographical story. In fact, the writer-director Trey plays a character who's a filmmaker named Trey in the movie. And there are a lot of resemblances to actual events from his family life that play out in the movie. Trey has agreed to be one of the special guests. Can you slip the film in, too, somehow? Because I'm dying to see that one. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. So you can come... Can As I come and just listen? The special guest. Okay. You, no. can, you can audit the no, class, No, that's Josh. demeaning, Adam. I'll just sit incognito in the audience. Okay, I want you to sit in the corner and think about what you've done. But it will be really fun to have Trey and other assorted guests throughout the semester. So if you are curious about that six-week class, go to filmspotting.net. And in our top stories or in our show notes, you will find a link for more information about how to register. And, Josh, just on the way over here... I saw the news pop up on Twitter that Doris Roberts had passed away at the age of 90. And we all think of her as the mom, of course, on Everybody Loves Raymond. But sure. she was really fresh in my mind, not just because of hearing this news, but because we saw her twice in our Elaine May Marathon. And she was wonderful in really small roles. Less memorable, probably, as Mrs. Cantrow in The Heartbreak Kid, Charles Groen's mother. I think we really only see her in the wedding scene at the beginning of the movie. I think that's right, yeah. But... She's pretty darn hilarious as the duplicitous maid who runs the the servants in the house, if you will. The main housekeeper in A New Leaf, the so first funny. film in the marathon.
1: She really is great. So funny and so young. I yeah. mean, it's one of those shocking, not expecting her to be in it, but like instantly seeing the face. Mm-hmm. And it only took like maybe two seconds for me. There was enough of a resemblance to For sure. her then and the everybody loves Raymond days and yeah she's really great yeah relief. a real real comedic talent
0: I see you roll your way to the semis mm-hmm. Dios mío man Liam and me we're gonna f*** you up yeah well you know that's just like uh, your opinion man
2: well, the Jesus, along with Liam and the Coen brothers themselves, did indeed make it to the semis. In fact, they rolled right into the championship round against one Paul Thomas Anderson. It is time, finally, to reveal your 2016 Film Spotting Madness champion, the director's bracket. Last year was actors, our inaugural year this year, 32 currently active Film spotting favorite directors, only one gets to survive to direct another day. And as we've noted along the way here, although their whole filmography, their past work is really important, the vote's really about your interest in their future work. And if you want to follow along, as always, we love to say challenge challenge.com. With an O. With an O. Challenge.com slash FS Madness 2016. That's where you will find the bracket. And at this point, since it's basically done, you'll see how the entire bracket played out. That's not where you vote. And there is a little bit of voting left to do. We will get to that right now as we start, Josh, not with the final matchup, but the results from the third place matchup. Just because Wes Anderson and Martin Scorsese got beat in the final four doesn't mean they are done completely. There is still the bronze match to decide, the third place winner. Let's hear from some of our listeners before we get into the final results, starting with Michael. He's in El Cerrito,
1: California. I proudly defended old Marty in each previous round, but my advocacy might end here. Screenwriting isn't a requirement for being a great director or for winning this tournament, but it's telling that each of the other three Film Spotting Madness finalists are distinguished, off-nominated, highly dedicated writers, PTA, the Coens, and Wes. Marty? He essentially retired as a collaborative screenwriter 20 years ago after 1996's Casino. Scorsese is a cinematic god, but I've run out of justifications for promoting him as a truly current contemporary force over this generation's best. So, in what feels like a surreal twist, I'm here defending Wes Anderson's right to claim the bronze over a true Hall of Famer. Spoiler alert I'm not Wes Anderson's biggest fan. Anderson, resistant as he is to earnest, well-observed human behavior and beholden as he is to twee precious quirks, is a vital current powerhouse just the same. He's endlessly imaginative, clever as hell, and at the top of his game, even if it's an annoying game. My skepticism with Wes aside, if future output is the measure, I'm afraid Scorsese's silence will go unreleased. Are there bootlegs in post-madness (laughs) land? Good question. In the dystopia that is, this future... Film Spotting Madness
2: Land. Can you get somehow no. bootleg copies? We're going to say no. No, you, no, We can't release any of the pressure. No. Well, Michael in El Cerrito has been a regular competitor and regularly chimed in here throughout Film Spotting Madness. We've also heard from Chris Massa in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He of the Massa Minute. I'm going to require that Chris starts submitting these Massa Minutes as voicemails. We should really that hear from nice. Chris, I think. When Martin Scorsese made his list of the top 10 films in the 90s, he put Bottle Rocket, Wes Anderson's debut at number seven that's slightly lower than the thin red line and eyes wide shut and higher than Fargo Malcolm X and heat Scorsese is a great director and he will forever be ranked as one of the all-time greats but he clearly saw Anderson as a director to be reckoned with as a filmmaker for the future we should go and do likewise now our wonderful producer Sam Van Halgren pulled this feedback I can't imagine there wasn't some wonderful feedback as well strongly supporting Martin Scorsese because the results as they stand right now, Josh, as of this taping with over a thousand votes cast... Three votes separating the director. Holy cow. It keeps fluctuating back and forth. So there is no clear winner here. It's basically 50-50. And because we're having so much fun, Josh, we're going to go ahead and let it ride another week. Some listeners are a little late to the game. They pick up the podcast. They download it and listen to it later after the voting maybe has closed. And we're already announcing the next round of results. So we thought we'd leave it open. Please do go to filmspotting.net and share your vote for the third place winner in Film Spotting Madness. That brings us, Josh. Two, the championship round. The number one seeded Paul Thomas Anderson versus
1: the number three seeded Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan. Keith Geiger said, From the beginning, this was destined to happen. I was both fearful and hopeful that this would happen. Now I have to choose, along with many film spotting listeners, between my two favorite filmmakers. If we are looking at past films, I go with the Coens. If I'm looking in the future... I'm going with PTA. My justification is dumb and arbitrary and could change tomorrow. It feels strange to vote in a contest wherein the two finalists are so unbelievably great that I have trouble choosing as opposed to voting for who I think will ruin things the least like I do during election cycles. (laughs) Mark Crilly says, it seems to me this
2: becomes a battle between sometimes quite accessible to the typical filmgoer, the Cones, throughout their career and also in recent years, and increasingly challenging and potentially confounding to the typical filmgoer, PTA more and more. My tastes push me toward the Cones, but I wonder if your final decision comes down to what you feel a great film should be and do and to what degree breaking entirely free from a conventional narrative is regarded as a virtue or a vice. So he says his tastes push him towards the cones. I guess that's the way he's going. I felt like Mark was riding on the fence a little bit there, Josh. But
1: Yeah, I, I'm not so sure. And really, he poses a provocative question. He does, but, I, you know, I don't like the assumption that accessibility means can't be a masterpiece either. So, yeah. No, and I think Mark would probably agree with that, but there is a little bit of
2: a divide there. That said, A Serious Man is a film that to some probably feels like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Yeah, I can see that.
1: It's a puzzle of its own that's hard to totally decipher. We also heard from James Locke. In times like these, facing such a tough decision, it comes down to one question. Which of these directors is most likely to make a sweet skateboarding video? (laughs) PTA has come the closest with his music videos and some shorts, while to the best of my knowledge, the Coens have not. So there it is. Congrats, PTA. Don't let me down. So I feel like James is making a
2: callback, and maybe it was from his own feedback or another film spotting listener to the Spike Jones test <laughs> when Paul Thomas Anderson took down Spike Jones in an earlier round of film spotting madness. Jones very famously known for videos and such that might involve skateboards and James Wee like the reference. Randy G in Plattsburgh, New York, says rumor has it the PTA recently directed the music video for the first single off Radiohead's ninth studio album. Seeing how i choose to watch that over anything in the world right now, I think the choice is in plain view. Milkshakes have never tasted so good. Hashtag PTA. That's Randy in Plattsburgh. Brings us to our final bit of feedback here, Josh. Well, actually, we have one more note from Ryan who says he picked the cones due to a panic attack. He really can't decide based on any other factor. (laughs) But Anthony Miglieri in Muncie, Indiana, he's a Muncie guy. He's got a little bit of acting, and we have not rehearsed this, and we haven't done Massacre Theater for weeks, so we are totally out of practice. Like, I don't know if we're going to be able to pull this off. Do you want to play the role of film spotting in this?
1: Um, Let's see. Who am I playing then? Then I am... No, well, well, I shouldn't say.
2: You're the monolithic. No, entity but we're that doing it. We're film doing a spotting. scene
1: here. We are doing a scene. So I'm thinking of the
2: actor who's <laughs> You're Michael Fassbender, of course. <laughs> no. You're Michael Fassbender, and I'm gonna play Mark. So this is film spotting and me having a dialogue to determine the winner of film spotting madness. Are you ready?
1: Okay, let's do it. And action. Could you answer the next series of questions without blinking your eyes? Without fear and hesitation. Answer as quickly as you can. Yes. Are you thoughtless in your remarks? I usually put some thought into them. Do your past failures in film Spotty madness bother you? No. Do you believe that Adam and Josh will save you from your own ridiculousness? No. Have you ever voted against your favorite director? Yes. Who? Scorsese. Where is Martin Scorsese now? Eliminated from the tournament, never to direct again. Do you regret this? No. Are you lying? No. Are you a liar? Yes. If you were locked in a theater for the next two to three hours, whose new film would it be with? Paul. Who is Paul? Best director working today.
2: Might make the best film of all time one day. Close your eyes. Recall a word. Milkshake. Recall a sound. Daniel Plainview is screaming at me, threatening my life.
1: Can you recall a word, any word? Finished. Who's finished? The Cone Brothers. Release and return to us. Open your eyes. Are you here with us in 2016? Yes. End of session. And? Scene. Scene. So, of course, you were actually not playing Michael
2: Fassbender. You were playing Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm glad the impersonation brought you around on that. You were playing Hoffman and I was not playing Joaquin Phoenix at all because who could play Joaquin Phoenix's (laughs) Freddie Quell? Thank you. Very nicely done, Anthony from Muncie. And you see, Josh, that Anthony is not just saying that the Coen brothers are done as far as he's concerned. He's not just calling it for Paul Thomas Anderson for himself, but he's calling it for all of Film Spotting Nation because the results are... Coen's 62% to PTA's 38%. 38% percent. It wasn't as close as I thought it'd be. Not close at all. No, but as we said last week, I did think the Cone brothers were going to take it. Now at the beginning of the tournament, I had PTA going all the way, but the Cones were so dominant. This was a relative blowout to a lot of other matchups, but the 38% that PTA got against the Cone brothers was by far the most any other matchup against them had in film spotting madness and i can't think of anyone else who would have put up a better
1: fight i mean no. they went through some big names to get here as we talked about before that's it the Cone brothers i mean are you i'm really, really that good surprised? with that are you I'm, okay with i'm them? fine with it i mean i you know my ranking my ranking probably would have been wes cohen's and then maybe pta so this was right really scorsese was kind of the wild card for me in the final four and uh, once wes went down you know I was kind of leaning for the Cone brothers, so well, I
2: feel pretty good. So it is the Cone brothers, number one, PTA number two, and as we've said, Wes Anderson very well could be number three, and that is how I would have seated them in the tournament, had I just been deciding. It would have been PTA, then the Cones, and then Wes Anderson, but you with Wes at number one, we gave him that second slot, it did not pan out for him, but... Third place, hardly something to sneeze at. If he gets it. If he gets it. And again, formidable competition in one Martin Scorsese. But as we have mentioned along the way, me, you, Josh, and Mike Merrigan, the founding father of Film Spotting Madness, we all did correctly predict PTA versus the Cones in the final. But we had PTA winning. We guessed wrong. We chose Mm -hmm. poorly. Mike did have the Cones winning. Sam, he also had the Cones winning, though he had Tarantino facing off against PTA, and Tarantino did not make the final four. So I have not done the math, but I have on, to figure— Come on, this is what
1: I'm worried about. I know.
2: I have to figure that Mike won it. I mean, he called the championship round. I would and think And he so. called the winner, and we didn't. He lost some matches along the way, but those aren't worth as much. So I guess I'm just going to say congratulations to not only the Coen brothers, but
1: congratulations to Mike Merrigan for winning the film spotting Madness pool. And dreaming it up, so it's only fitting. <laughs> there you go. But I'm, you're not going to tell me if I have to watch Ridiculous 6? That was the price to pay if you came in last. Ah, I'll have to do the math, Josh. Okay. I will do Get the back math. To me tonight, please,
2: <laughs> so I can sleep one way or the other. Fair enough. That is then more or less the end of Film Spotting Madness 2016. Obviously, we will announce the results of Marty versus Wes on next week's show, but that means it's really time to start talking about Madness 2017. Before we do that, a little business we overlooked last week that could really help us, potentially, Josh, as it relates to Madness 2017. One thing we absolutely meant to get to on our Richard Linklater episode, we talked about Everybody Wants Some in great detail. We did a top five Richard Linklater scenes. We did more film spotting madness. And of course, we also did our Elaine May Marathon Awards. And that all went on so long, we trimmed out the May Marathon as a separate podcast. But it was such a long show. And there was so much to get to that we forgot One of the key objectives of that episode was not just to share our love for Richard Linklater's films and share our top five Linklater scenes, but to induct a couple Linklater films, actually a trilogy of films, into the film-spotting pantheon. And for those who may not be familiar, the pantheon has been around almost as long as this show where Sam and I originally didn't want to constantly have to reckon with movies like Citizen Kane or Raging Bull or Chinatown or All the President's Men when we were... Forming our top fives. And we said, you know what, these movies are so good. We're gonna set them aside and they're not gonna be eligible. And they really constitute some of the greatest films in film history, but more than that, just they're our favorite films.
1: Right. There was definitely a personal connection, is my That's sense, right. to these as well, and which yeah. is why they continually come up on top fives. So. That's right. And we have inducted
2: a few over the years. Every co-host, including you, Josh, has been part of nominating some films and inducting them into the Pantheon we haven't done it for a little while it feels like we're certainly due and at this point I think before sunrise before sunset and before midnight certainly worthy of being inducted into the Pantheon I'll be
0: right here baby you are gonna miss that plane I know
2: So three more films in the Pantheon. That brings it to a current total of 39. And you can find that full list over at Letterboxd or at filmspotting.net under top fives. Sam and I were really pushing hard, but we didn't push hard enough, I guess,
1: to get Dazed and Confused in there as well. I think it's worthy. I think it's absolutely worthy. So my only reservation with that is I do like Dazed and Confused quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Very good film. That would put Richard Linklater as the director with the most films in the Pantheon. Yeah. And... Maybe on the face of it, that doesn't sound too crazy, but he would have four, which would mean he'd have more than Steven Spielberg. He'd mm-hmm. have more than Martin Scorsese. Right. And something Tarantino, about that the Coen just feels off to me, you know? Yeah. And even if you put Days and Confused up against maybe, let's say, Martin Scorsese's third, fourth, or fifth best film, or the same thing with Spielberg. So, you know, you guys... We're really enthusiastic about Linklater. Probably, to be fair, both of you are bigger Linklater fans, you and right. Sam. I just wanted to, you know, put the brakes on things before we got too carried away and put his Did whole you, filmography and being rational and reasonable. I mean, when you wanted to rename it the Richard Linklater Pantheon, honorary <laughs> that Pantheon, was too much. That was just a little much. Okay, fine. Well, I know you're trying to get to call him
2: Rick and everything. But... We are. I know that is my goal here, but that means we are at 39 films in the Pantheon. And how does this relate to? A poll question, how does it relate to 2017 Film Spotting Madness? Well, we have two options. And people, since the beginning of this Film Spotting Madness in particular, the director's bracket, we've been getting suggestions from listeners. And some of them have been okay. Others have been the kind that we appreciate, but no, we're not going to do for whatever reason. Or we'll get to in 2027. Right, when we're really running low on options. And here are the two that we've come down on, Josh. And even though these conversations mostly go between sam and myself i think you agree that these are the two best potential options not wanting to completely repeat ourselves and just do actors over again or just do directors over again the two options we have are to give you a pantheon Bracket. How hard would it be? It's been hard enough trying to pick between some of these filmmakers who you like more and who you are kicking out never to make another film again. But what if you had to pick between movies in the film spotting pantheon and what number we end up at? We'll see how many films are in the pantheon at that point. It doesn't have to be 32. It doesn't have to be 64 either. It might be somewhere in between. We might add some. For example, we might add all the films that have been part of our Sacred Cow reviews. Mm -hmm. So whether they're in the Pantheon or not, a movie like Alien would potentially be eligible for this bracket. Some other films like Pulp Fiction, we've discussed as a Sacred Cow, that's in the Pantheon already. Raiders of the Lost Ark is in the Pantheon already, but... The Shining isn't. Say Anything isn't. The Breakfast Club, Edward Scissorhands, our most recent. We've actually done, looking at the list, Josh, we've done 19, with Alien, 19 Sacred Cow reviews. So those a lot more 19, than we thought. Yeah, those 19 take out the ones that are already in the Pantheon, plus the 39 films that we've already mentioned. I mean, we're certainly getting pretty close to 64, so we might end up with a full bracket, just like... The NCAA's March Madness with 64 movies and pairing those down where you're putting 2001 against Vertigo, or I believe a listener mentioned this matchup a few weeks ago, got us thinking about this out of sight, the Steven Soderbergh movie against the Big Lebowski.
1: Yeah, this will make for some really intriguing matchups.
2: Yeah, and that's one in particular, too, I think. Me, you, I don't want to speak for you, Josh, but if I remember correctly, me, you, and Sam all were actually leaning maybe a little bit towards Out of Sight. I think I know. It's, it seems but ridiculous. But I think most but film I think spotting so. listeners that would be probably a crushing victory for The Big Lebowski, even though there's a lot of love out there for Out of Sight.
1: But the three of us would all probably—I would vote Out of Sight. I think I would have to as well, and I think it would depend on how many people sat down and did revisits, because The Big Lebowski for me is one that will live forever. In individual scenes. Mm -hmm. But if you watch it all the way through, I don't know. For me, Out of Sight, I think has it. Okay. Well, that matchup may happen
2: depending on how you guys vote. Are we going to do a Pantheon edition of Film Spotting Madness 2017? Or is it going to be actors versus actresses? Which is something of a variation of the first. A variation on the first one. Film Spotting Madness, The key distinction here is instead of 32 actors and actresses all kind of blended together, we would do a total field of 64 32 actors on one side, 32 actresses on the other. So an actor will face off against an actress in the final. Now, that's the way it worked out in 2015 Madness anyway. It was Fats Bender versus Jessica Chastain in the final. But that's what we're thinking. 32 allow us to expand the field, get more great actors and a lot more great great actresses in there. And we've also kicked around, I don't know your thoughts on this, but we've kicked around maybe trying to keep it confined to lead actors as opposed to letting in some character actors or maybe not maybe because of 32 on each side we can get away with mixing them more but mm-hmm. we're considering that
1: yeah that's that would be fun i like the fact that we'd get more names in i guess my reservation there is if we waited a few years to do that one and there'd be some up-and-coming actors who might be added to the list then too so yeah. um so we'll see two good choices both would be very fun we're leaving it up to the listeners
2: now. We didn't come to a final decision on this, but would you like to leave a third option for listeners, an other, and they could write it in? Or do we want to make them vote between those two? Because that's where we're really heading. What do you think? I think other.
1: I mean, there might be a great, exciting
2: idea that's out there that we haven't heard yet. Something better than what Sam and I have come up with? I mean, Sorry, I
1: didn't
0: didn't mean to hurt your
2: feelings. (laughs) Well, we can't wait to hear what you think about Film Spotting Madness 2017. The sooner you vote... The sooner Sam and I can start planning. So yes. please <laughs> rush to the website, vote now. Actors v. Actresses, or
1: Pantheon movies, or other. If there's like a gap, like a week, where there's no Film Spotting Madness to commiserate over, what are you going to do with all your time? I don't know. You should should go on vacation and recover. See my children. Recharge. (laughs) All right, Green Room director Jeremy Saunier was not part of the bracket for Film Spotting Madness this year, but after 2014's Golden Brick winning Blue Ruin and the new critically acclaimed Green Room, he may be talking his way into a future edition of the tournament. Up next, Adam's interview with the fast-rising indie filmmaker. Stay with us. I never
0: meant to call you. It's am going
2: Folks, just want to jump in quick here to mention our donors this week and share our thanks and also read a few of your comments. We start with Randy Grimshaw in Chazy, New York, who wrote in Josh with a nice note saying how much he appreciated the show and called us the Michael Jordan of podcasts. And I said that would sound pretty good on a t-shirt and he donated saying we should use his small contribution to fund the manufacturing of film spotting the michael jordan of podcast t-shirts let's do it i grew up in the jordan era big jordan fan yeah but i have a feeling just using the michael jordan name might get us into trouble. Probably Maybe true. we should stay away. A gold-level donation comes to us from a longtime listener, Thomas Torrey in Charlotte, North
1: Carolina. I feel like I haven't written or called in a while, but I still haven't missed an episode since my first, when you reviewed American Gangster. If there's any chance of shouting out to your Orange County listeners, I'd love for Film Spotting Nation to show up at the world premiere of my debut feature film. My film is a thriller called Fair, and it's premiering Tuesday, April 26th at the Newport Beach Film Festival. Sorry for the late notice. Fair is set entirely inside a moving car and was filmed in only three days. The UK's Bloody Flick said Fair is the real deal, a stunning debut feature. Cinema Slasher called it Hitchcockian, and DK Magazine said Thomas Torrey shines, superb execution. And we'll put a link to the trailer for FAIR in the show notes.
2: Yeah, congratulations to Thomas. We love sharing the news of film spotting listeners who are also filmmakers. And Thomas added that he's doing his best to get it into a Chicago festival so the two of us can see it. Again, we'll link to more information in our show notes. And Thomas adds as a PS, Jeff Nichols should have gone all the way. So I think giving some love to a fellow North Carolinian, I think that's where Jeff Nichols is from. He's at least a fellow Southerner. Yeah, I thought it might've been Arkansas. I knew you were going to say that. I think it is Arkansas. There's got to be a North Carolina connection somewhere in there. A Platinum Club donation comes to us from Layana Mix. Speaking of long, long, long time listeners, she's in Madison, Wisconsin, though I think at the moment Layana is out in Singapore. She says, Gentlemen, I can feel it in my bones. Time for another dealer payout. Thank you for the many moments of muttered movie magnificence.
1: <laughs> another T shirt slogan there. There you go. <laughs>
2: I like it. She wrote in with a comment about Waking Life, a Richard Linklater film that she... Strongly encourages people to see. We have both seen it, and it's a film I'm a big fan of, even if it didn't make my top five link later scenes. But I mentioned Leanna's been listening for a long time. A preliminary, just a quick search of the Film Spotting mailbag shows that she's been listening at least as far back as May 2006 when the show became Film Spotting. But I think she goes back well into the early Cinecast days. So thank you, Leanna, for sticking with us. And As a no-cost way to support the show, we did want to mention that it does make a difference if you just go to iTunes and you rate the show, maybe leave a comment there. We are always looking to get in front of even more listeners and get a few more subscribers, so you can do that if you haven't already. I promised on last week's show that we would finally get to a letter that's been sitting at home, and I keep forgetting to bring it in. When we tape, and it comes to us from Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego, Oregon. He's the guy who sent us not only, if I'm remembering correctly, a gold level donation to the show, but sent us some Deschutes as well, some Portland beer. Which I don't think I've mail. gotten yet. And somehow I even brought beer to last week's episode. I was episode, just going to say you brought crappy bring the crappy
1: beer last week That's because and you're sitting on the Deschutes. It
2: might be gone.
1: No, no, no. It might be. Well, you're going to... There might be a black-beam still in the fridge. You're going to be buying me some Deschutes. I guess I will be. Andrew says, I had fully intended to write you a set of snarky comments about how I was Team Josh and how could Adam hate this or diss that? Clearly, Adam sustained minor head trauma with his choice for bicycle scenes slash Butch Cassidy, and Star Trek 1 versus Khan, I almost stopped listening. But then came Adam's love of Goodfellas, A Fish Called Wanda, True Romance, slash Tarantino, and other 80s, 90s nostalgia, which deeply conflicts with the traditional arthouse Adam and keeps me guessing. Plus, I also fell on Team Adam for Interstellar. Go figure. You were both right about Silver Linings' playbook. Regardless, it's a mess, both hot mess and meso fun. So rather than go into Team Josh or Team Adam, I was pleased that you both took the time to discuss Bond, a childhood favorite with my father. I'll say that I enjoy both your perspectives and hope that there's a place where Hobbits, Pixar movies, Steve Zissou, Casa de mi Padre, Bergman films, Woody Allen worshipers, The Breakfast Club, dramatic Adam McKay movies, and The Fast can live together happily as one in Oscar Isaac's house for Ex Machina. My second favorite movie of 2015, too. There you go. Here comes the sappy, Brooklyn. In the end, only the penitent man will pass. Wait, you guys aren't guilty of anything. You've both been very humble, insightful, and a pleasure to listen to. Please keep going and know that I look forward to your show every week. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the beer. It was delicious. Just keep rubbing it in.
2: <laughs> I might share some with Josh. I think there's a bottle or two left in the fridge. Thank you for was the donation. Was that a 12-pack or no, a six-pack, no, Andrew? come on. And, you know let it be a lesson i want to know though, how much i'm there, though Ode to andrew maybe if you want to send some beer something in a bottle to your favorite podcasters no matter how meticulously you pack it hoping to keep it well padded sending it to a p.o box via the u.s postal service it might end up with at least one of those bottles this
1: you're raking. really stretching here now you're claiming that they no busted. true
2: story true story <laughs> at least one of them did josh uh-huh. anyway so that's sure. still left five whatever
0: such a shame my friends, you had to rain. purple rain purple rain. Purple rain, purple rain Hi, my name's Steve Coogan, and you're listening to Film Spotter. He's got six bullets. <laughs> For
1: real? We all go once? Alright, so hold off a sec. For what? We haven't
3: done anything. It doesn't matter.
0: Okay. They're called cartridges. The bullet is a part that enters your brain if you keep talking
2: Welcome back to Film Spotting. Less really is often more in movies, and for proof of that, look no further than the maximum intensity of the minimally plotted Green Room, which is out in select cities now and opens in Chicago this weekend. I spoke to Green Room writer-director Jeremy Sonier this week about violence in his movies, the authenticity of embracing Simon and Garfunkel, and more. Here's our conversation. Jeremy, first, I believe you are the first film-spotting Golden Brick-winning director to be interviewed on the show. Thanks for making some time.
3: Oh, wow. It's truly an honor.
2: (laughs) I appreciate it. This is going to be probably an odd question and a long-winded question to start, and I say odd because I'm pretty sure you don't have your next few decades of movies planned out, but I try to go into movies knowing as little as possible. All I knew about Green Room was that it was about a band that takes a gig that goes badly, and that was it other than that you wrote and directed it. And so while I was watching it, I found myself surprised at every little twist and turn. And I was surprised by just how violent it gets. It gets, of course, graphically violent. And then I only remembered much later that, well, Blue Ruin gets pretty bloody too. And having only seen Blue Ruin, I realized while I was watching Green Room that I don't yet know what a Jeremy Sonier film is. So there's that element of of surprise, uh, moment to moment, do you know what a Jeremy Sonier film is? Meaning, let's say, violence. Is that specifically something you'll likely always explore on screen? Characters who are on the fringe, is that something you'll likely always explore? Or is that all literally yet to be written?
3: It's certainly yet to be written. I came up, my, my first short film back in 2004 was a sort of melancholy day in the life of comedy hmm.
0: So,
3: <laughs> I do have different muscles I want to flex but what attracted me to these films right now is the level of tension not necessarily the actual on-screen violence or the the deaths. and and the body count in my films are actually relatively low compared to almost any film you'll see this summer in the theaters true you know aside from the the chamber dramas Um, but (laughs) I think the intensity is what I'm going for now I I want more out of the film as far as the the physical response I I guess my my films are so tense and so violent because my, my home life is so satisfying. Uh, I want I want actual thrills and chills, as cheesy as that might sound. Yeah. Um, some kind of high impact emotionally and you know physically from from the films. And it's I like to explore these premises right now. It, it's just about it's amateur night. That's the theme is, is, is having is thrusting relatable human characters in these sort of standard cinematic scenarios. I find that really exciting to explore. Yeah, just it, Watching real humans on, on screen is something new. <laughs>
2: yeah, it, it definitely comes through. I found myself, in a way, I, I can't think of a recent film-going experience really thinking about myself in the shoes of these characters and wondering how I would behave and how I would be just as lost as they are. And like I said, that's an experience you don't usually have at the cinema. Yeah,
3: yeah. And that, that actually is what makes them so intense and mm-hmm. makes people point out, Twilight, because when you see a loss of life that really matters to you, it's dreadful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to get through these films, but I hope to offer uh, some sort of exhilaration at the end mm-hmm. if you can survive the experience.
2: There's a recurring bit in the film, I guess, about what your all-time Desert Island band would be and what your public answer is versus your private answer. And as badly as I want to ask you, I'm not going to be the guy who asks you to name your Desert Island film or Desert Island director. But of course, this is a subject near and dear to my heart because here on the show, we do top five lists almost every week, have for over 10 years. And occasionally you find yourself questioning, did I put that arthouse subtitled film higher than the Hollywood movie in my top five? Because I'm trying to look more sophisticated. I'm trying to project some kind of image, you know, to the world. But at the risk of oversimplifying Green Room, the moral seems to be what I took away from it a little bit is be careful what you wish for. Because if you want to present yourself to the world as hardcore, as these band members seem to want to do, you better be prepared for what happens when you run up against people who truly are hardcore. Am I oversimplifying it? Or is that something you were exploring?
3: No, I mean, that's an entirely valid interpretation of the movie. But there are you know, many themes here that I'm exploring. And another one would be about this, this is a, an insane, overnight, siege film. And the goal, uh, as far as surviving the night, if you can shed your ideologies or affiliations or your projected self, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's, it is, like, if that's not a, it's not a contest. It's who's more real? Who's more hardcore? And I think once you realize that's not really a currency, it's just, it's just, you can strip all that away and become the human that you are. You can admit your Desert Island band, yeah. um, whether it is, you know, a punk rock band or Simon and Garfunkel. Right. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it's just, and that's as just, just punk rock as anything else. You know, I'm talking to a lot of punk rock gurus, like real hardcore heads from way back when. Um, and uh, I was just kind of shocked that you know, when I talk about their desert island bands. Rarely is it a hardcore band, huh. punk rock band. And the reason is, you know, being part of a scene is is it's so participatory. I mean, you have to show up. It's the experience that's valuable. When I'm at home, you know, punk rock and hardcore defined my youth. I was a skateboarder. I was charged with energy, and this is an amazing outlet, you know, physically for me, to show up and be part of the scene, and get in the pit, get, get get physical. But when I'm sitting at home, I'm not going to take, if I had to choose one disc, it's not going to be a hardcore album. It's going to be something else. And uh, that's also, that's as true. People, people online, you know, about the band, the, a- band right, the fictional band, featured in Green Room, they're not, they're not that hard, and that's the point. Yeah. The problem is, when it becomes a contest, in a scene, who's cooler, who has the best vinyl collection, and who's more true. There is no more true, as long as you can just admit to yourself who you are. Miley Cyrus can be, of man, that can be real as hell.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, along those lines, this notion of a projection of yourself, I was thinking back on Blue Ruin and our review of it, and I, I looked at my notes, and of course, there's a key difference in that Dwight, the main character there, he's more active he's driving the narrative he's seeking revenge whereas the ain't rights here are victims they've certainly become more active but they're victims caught up in something that they don't want to be part of and they're trying to survive but the two movies yeah. definitely seem connected in a number of ways and as i went back to my review of blue ruin i mentioned that i love the attention to detail and how with dwight's character he's pretty fastidious for a homeless guy and so we make certain assumptions about him because he's living out of his car and then you make us question those assumptions or you challenge those assumptions and I wondered if that might ultimately be the point how easy it is to get yourself caught up in a narrative you you've constructed for your life and then the consequences of that you know he gave himself a purpose he gave himself a reason really to get up every day but that's at play here as well a little bit in terms of whatever type of ideology you choose to subscribe to to define yourself.
0: Yeah,
3: for sure. I mean, and, and you mentioned the details and, and that's what I was really digging into and I've often described my films as the cutting room floor of a Hollywood action movie. You know, it's, it's all of these nitty-gritty sort of nooks and crannies that I explore that I think are fascinating. Like, how would this really unfold in real life? You know, it's not just going to cut to the next plot point or am I going to inject false, the ingenious twists into the uh, the narrative. I think that's it's just so forced.
0: You know? Yeah.
3: But I certainly explore inept protagonists. in this time, yes, it is inverted. These are these are victims. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, the adversaries are also reluctant. Right. This is, a, this is a film, despite the mayhem and gore and violence, it's very intense. But if anyone involved could push a button and erase the night's events, they would. They'd rather go home and watch TV. And there is no sadistic bloodlust being satisfied by the, the uh, aggressors, yeah. the mop-up operation. And that was also something I was exploring is about the nature of violence. It's, I don't think it's really just born of pure bloodlust. I think it's it's about self, and it's sort of ruthless indifference that we have for each other's needs. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole lot of layers, but it's also, it's meant to be ingested as a experience. Mm-hmm. It's fully immersive, um, but I don't want to get too preachy. Maybe sure. the second or third viewing in the
0: room,
3: <laughs> you'll unlock a few layers. But
2: <laughs> I do want to focus a little bit on those adversaries because this movie is full of people who do brutal things, as you said, often, reluctantly, and they're playing very loud, aggressive music, but I noticed that many characters and especially the main adversary here, the leader, Patrick Stewart, he seems to get quieter the crazier things get. And so there's this sense of yes. calm that belies what's really happening, which for me as a viewer, it makes it all that much more intense. And I was wondering if that tonal clash was something you always had in mind, or did it really come out in the performance?
3: For sure. I mean, you know, and playing a leader of, of a skinhead organization, you know, that, that leans far right, whatever you want to define it as, but has an extreme ideology. But the whole thing is, as, as these leaders function in real life, based on all the references I was using, they're not known, you know, around town as nefarious Nazi leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, they're charismatic politicians. And and they, they're really good at selling this ideology, and they recruit people. And that's with charisma and, a, and, a, and a sort of quiet authority. So it's important that when, when he came to, uh, you know, Darcy Banker, Patrick Stewart's character, he comes to the club a bit late in the game to really oversee this sort of, they're eliminating the witnesses that have seen a backstage crime, you know. Mm -hmm. But it it is with that quiet authority, it's sort of effortless, and and most of his power is implied. You know, he's spoken of, and and you feel the impact far before he actually arrives on screen.
0: Yeah. And it was
3: important that, yeah, when he comes in, that although he sports a beard, not a mustache, he's not going to be twirling that. He's not going to be a black hat. I'm I'm a bad guy, and going to get really loud and angry and bark. The one time he does lose his cool, uh, it was this lovely moment backstage when he face facepalms uh, Macon Blair, who plays his underling uh, Gabe. He yells and becomes physical for a split second, and then he takes a minute, takes a breath, and he apologizes mm-hmm. and then carries on. Yeah, and that was that was a key thing is just to show there's something there underneath, but his power is that ability to stay cool mm-hmm. and sort of reptilian throughout the whole insane night.
2: Yeah. You mentioned Macon Blair, and I think I heard somewhere you guys have been buddies since high school or even before that?
3: Oh, before, yeah. Yeah. Our first film together was around 1987,
2: 88. Wow. (laughs) He was the star of Blue Rue, and he was Dwight. He plays a key supporting role here. You mentioned he's kind of the underling to... Patrick Stewart's character, and I think he's just a secret weapon, man, because he's kind of the fool character here. He's kind of a fool a little bit in Blue Ruin too, but he's one of those actors who doesn't overplay anything, the comedy or the pathos. We don't ever laugh at him or really feel pity for him either, and I think we just see him as someone maybe just like the band. He's probably a fundamentally good person who's also just in over his head.
3: Yeah, I mean, he, he is, he's also a, a, a fantastic observer, and he's such a great person with such humanity that you don't need much. I mean, he, he's also, he has the rare ability of of masterful physical acting. Hmm. You know, his physicality is priceless. I mean, the way in Blue Ruin, that he could sell gags and just really, uh, when there's a little sort of gap in the script, like, you know, anybody, hey, I need you to actually drop the weapon. I know... No one would do that in real life, but I need you to sell it on screen. Or well, when you watch him do it, no one questions mm-hmm. like, the motivations or or the action that that unfolds. And for for Green Room, you just look in his eyes and you see like he is trapped in the middle. He's trying to do a good job. He's trying to please Patrick Stewart's character and manage his club and sort of contain the situation, so to speak. But he's also deeply disturbed by the level of violence and and and, and remorseful throughout. And and you know he has this. He has one of the few like. Very strong character arcs in the movie. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, that's not what I tend toward. I don't like to arbitrarily beef up characters to attract actors. I don't like to add exposition or backstory. But there's there's a whole lot of humanity in making Blair, and we certainly mind that for this movie.
2: Yeah, some of the other performers here, Elias hat and Anton Yelchin, make up the two of the members of the Ain't Rights. And as someone who's been in a few bands in his day, though, though not certainly punk bands, the worst thing you can do in a movie about a band or about music is have a bunch of performers who the audience doesn't buy as musicians, yeah. no matter what kind of music they're playing. And uh, how important was that to you? And how did you pull it off? Cause it you was did crucial.
3: I mean, I knew I knew this you know, the thing about this movie is it, it uses punk rock, hardcore and metal to as like solid rocket fuel. You know, it, it basically uses it to propel this genre film into the stratosphere and then it drops it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it becomes something else but I knew this film being set in the world of, of live performance and and, and bands, so that, that it would be vetted and scrutinized by every single musician out there. Mm-hmm. It was crucial, to, and the whole movie hinged upon the believability of this cast to pull it off, and you know, I didn't give them a lot of leeway. They, some of it, like Callum Turner, who was the lead singer of this fictional band, The Ain't Right, flew into town 11 p.m., at night and his first live performance ever on screen or on stage was the next morning. Wow. And just kind of threw him into the fire. But we, we had pre-recorded some music. The ain't rights the, the instrument players, you know, Anton Yelchin, Alia Shawkat and Joe Cole were learning sort of in a garage space to keep up tempo with this pre-recorded music. Callum Turner had to actually perform the vocals. So it was it was it was trial by fire, but but um by the time we shot the main performance inside the concert venue, they had become a real band, and could really pass the test. and And, and we had uh, a pretty decent live show at the Rat Party by the time we finished production. So, <laughs> very proud of them. Yeah. Also, um, the key was always is, is to take that risk because the only thing more important than having a cohesive band on stage was having an amazing ensemble with mm-hmm. the chops to carry the weight of this movie. Sure. So that's how they were cast, and we had to trust that they would. They would come together as a band.
2: Yeah. Shooting in this confined space, this club, and often within the confined space of the green room of this club. How much of a challenge was that for you? How fun was that for you to embrace that challenge? And I want to ask you about one scene in particular that that really stood out for me. It's a key confrontation scene where we as an audience know a lot more than the band does stuck inside that room. We're privy to conversations between Patrick Stewart and his underlings that they aren't. But there's a key scene where, as I recall it anyway, and it's been a little while since I saw the movie, but we stay in the room with them the entire time. We only hear Patrick Stewart and others outside the room just like they do. And so even though we kind of know what their objective is, we have no idea what they're actually doing. And that heightens that intensity again for us.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really fun to experiment with that as far as what causes so much terror in this movie is the concept of information deprivation. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we know a little, a little bit more, but we also don't know where this is all headed. Not until the very end of the film, we see what the, the overall plan was. And so in the moment, I mean, it, it's, it's just terrifying because Patrick Stewart, again, like with, with that quiet authority, like he has to kind of, this has to sort of permeate the the space between them, which is a, a locked door, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the band is, is leaning in, and the audience is leaning in, trying to hear what he's saying. And he seems so reasonable. And that's what's so terrifying. Yeah. Like he's, he's making a solid case. And how to block that? Thing? I mean, you know, we... I, I can... I'm a very visual storyteller. I, I, even when I write scripts, I see images. But putting the ensemble cast in a single room was a big challenge because... I didn't really have the ability to pre-visualize. I couldn't storyboard or shot list really until I saw the action take place. So we would go in blind to these scenes, certainly knowing the story beats we had to hit and and the the, the highlights of the coverage. But we would do the old-fashioned way of just coming in with my my cinematographer Mm -hmm. and the crew, and we would rehearse and block the scene and really dig into it and then pick it apart with, with very particular camera placement and, and a disciplined coverage,
0: mm-hmm. but it
3: gets exhausting. I mean, the emotional charge in that room was real. It hmm. was like a live stage performance. You had we shot two cameras just to keep it keep the heat on everybody. We had Patrick Stewart outside in the hallway. You're we on a soundstage. We had built the entire concert venue, and it felt so real. And and, and really, I think that exudes from from the actors. So that was yeah. that was really a, a lesson for me, and then how to cover interior scenes. And really, it, it's just about relying upon. The performances. Yeah. That is that is the window into everything else, and, and it will heighten all the other craft elements that, that come in uh, behind
2: it. In the press notes for this movie, you're asked about the potential influence of a bunch of movies, including Assault on Precinct 13, Suburbia, Deliverance, Night of the Living Dead. You added to the list Straw Dogs, Die Hard, Apocalypse Now, The Road Warrior, and River's Edge. A movie you don't mention is the movie that we actually discussed earlier in this episode of our show, and it's Alien. Both movies obviously share a confined setting and that horror element of a group of actors trying to survive as we were discussing whether or not alien is still a a sacred cow deserves. It's kind of sacred cow status as an all time classic film. I have to ask, are you a fan of alien?
3: Huge fan of alien, That just didn't come up. Actually, a lot of these come up in conversations and I have to dig in because actively I I referenced straw dogs for sure. Mm -hmm. I I was trying to explore relatively thin plots that result in an amazing, rich experience cinematically. And I was thinking about yeah. Also, when I thought of actually uh, in the hotel this morning, reflecting, it was like also First Blood.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You know,
3: it, 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 but Alien is—I'm a huge fan of Alien. I mean, sort of the design and attention of that movie. Yeah. It was way ahead of its time, and it, and it will stand the test of time. So, for sure. And, and you know, when I write these movies, I actually don't actively reference many films at all. I like to think I'm writing an original screenplay, but I, of course freely admit that i am a product of every single movie i've ever watched yeah but i but you know my influence you'll see are they're all primarily 70s and 80s movies Hmm. that's that's what i dig
2: sure well it's been a real pleasure to talk with you jeremy hope to do it again sometime and i hope everyone does go out and see green room thanks for your time
3: thank you so much been a pleasure careful now
0: Can't die here. so don't ah!
2: Green Room is currently out in limited release and right now, Josh, we are planning to have a review of the film on next week's show. If you see it, let us know what you think. Email feedback at filmspotting.net.
1: You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744 is the place to do that and you may hear it featured on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook and we are also on Twitter. At Film Spotting is Adam. I'm at Larson on
2: film. Over at filmspotting.net you can find 11 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives while you're there vote in the current film spotting poll help us choose the subject of film spotting madness 2017 and help us choose the next film spotting movie marathon if you haven't already please check out the film spotting family of podcasts film spotting svu and the next picture show you can find both in itunes out wide this weekend josh the huntsman winter's war a sequel to snow white and the huntsman Except no Kristen Stewart as Snow White in this one, but it does have Charlize Theron returning along with Emily Blunt and Jessica Chastain. Sounds like a fair trade. Yeah, maybe so. Out in limited release, along with Green Room opening here in Chicago, you can see Elvis and Nixon, Michael Shannon as the king, and Kevin Spacey as Nixon. A movie
1: based on that famous photograph of Elvis's visit this to sounded the Oval Office. Pretty intriguing. And then I saw the trailer looks like a ton of fun. Yeah, the
2: trailer looks great. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was on my most anticipated movies of the year. We'll see if it lives up to that little bit of hype. A Hologram for a King. This is Tom Hanks in a movie directed by Tom Tickfer of Run Lola Run fame. And Sing Street, the new one from John Carney, the writer-director of Once. Next week here on the show, we do plan to discuss Green Room, as we said. And the top five maybe no longer to be decided. We're leaning towards doing a top five that was previously done on the show six or seven years ago. Maybe at least a couple hundred episodes. We did our one-spot shoots, is what we called it, or top five movies that all take place in a single location. That was the top five. You were not a participant in, Josh. So it might be fun for us to revisit that, tying
1: in, of course, with Green Room. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.